This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 5th, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. Seventy-five years ago today, a dark chapter of American history came to an end when Utah ratified the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, ending the experiment known as alcohol prohibition. The subject of a forum today at the Cato Institute, free to booze. Brandon Arnold, the Cato Institute's Director of Government Affairs, provides a history lesson. So 75 years later, why should we mark the day that uh, Prohibition ended beyond a uh, decent excuse to drink? Well, I think it's important to look back at this failed experiment as there are a lot of misconceptions about Prohibition, and there's certainly many lessons to be learned. Uh, Some of the misconceptions, I think, are based in a Hollywood-style romanticization of this period. You think of the speakeasies and jazz clubs and such. Of course, that really glosses over the skyrocketing crime, the the corruption, the lack of respect for the law during that period. Simply put, prohibition turned many Americans into criminals. You see that in the the alcohol consumption rate, which fell only slightly, fell dramatically in the early years. But eventually, after just a few years, it it, it was was about 60 or 70 percent of pre-prohibition consumption. So there are a lot of Americans drinking. Also, store, store owners, business owners became uh, corrupted by prohibition. Many of them took payments from the mob in exchange for turning their storefronts into essentially alcohol stores. So you see a lot of everyday Americans that were turned into criminals by drinking and, and by, uh, by selling and uh, the alcohol trade in general. But more disturbingly, you saw a pretty large increase in the amount of violent crime. The murder rate increased by about 50% in the early years of Prohibition going into uh, uh, the early 30s. And then uh, not long after Prohibition was, was repealed, it only took a, a few years before that uh, murder rate was halved. So a huge spike and then a huge drop in the murder rate. I think it's a very telling sign. In addition to the violent crime, certainly saw a lot of corruption amongst uh, police officers and other law enforcement officials, even those specifically tasked with cracking down on alcohol. Uh, and as a result, certainly Americans lost a lot of respect for the law. And uh, I think it became much more difficult to enforce even laws that were unrelated to the alcohol trade. Uh, so this was, this was certainly a, a dark period in our nation's history. So how do we get repeal? I mean, this was the only example of having a, a uh, constitutional amendment repealed, which requires uh, a big number of states to say, yes, we want this in the Constitution, and then a similar big number of states saying, no, we no longer want this in the Constitution. How do we get to that point? Again, I think there's some misconceptions about how prohibition was repealed. Certainly, there are a lot of people fed up with all of the ills of prohibition, which I just, just described. But another important driving force was tax revenue. Uh, Before the passage of the national income tax in 1913, alcohol taxes accounted for about a third of federal revenues. Now, once the income tax was passed, uh, these revenues, uh, the new revenues partially offset what they were receiving from alcohol taxes. So prohibition didn't have nearly the, the hit on the treasury that it would have otherwise had. But when the alcohol taxes began to drop in the early 30s as a result of the Depression, Congress desperately looked for another source of revenue. Thus, they passed the 21st Amendment, legalizing alcohol, but more importantly for the purposes of Congress, taxing alcohol. A lawyer friend of mine who uh, used to practice law in the state of Kentucky assured me that the single most powerful lobby there is not teachers, it's not funeral home directors, 
It is alcohol distributors. Now, Kentucky is perhaps a unique case because we have a lot of producers of alcohol, but clearly prohibition left behind some uh, weird uh, regulations in, in how alcohol moves from one place to another and what type of permissions you have to get to do it. What is still with us from the days of the end of prohibition? Yeah, the, the legacy of prohibition is still alive and well. Uh, I think the distrib- distributors became uh, a little bit better known to uh, the American people during the election when it became known that, that, that John McCain's wife, Cindy, was very wealthy because she was the heiress to one of the largest beer distributors in the entire country in Arizona. Uh, and I, I think that might have been surprising to a lot of Americans because they're not familiar with the distribution system. Essentially, what we have now is a three-tier distribution system. The way it works is when alcohol is produced, uh, be it distilled or brewed or what have you, uh, the producer cannot sell it directly to a restaurant, cannot sell it directly to a consumer in most cases. What they have to do is first sell their products to a wholesaler, then the wholesaler can sell it to a retailer, be it a restaurant or a liquor store, what have you. And then the, the retailer can send, sell it to the consumer. So in circumventing this, I should add, circumventing this process is a felony in some states. So you have mandated distribution chain that ends up creating a disproportionate amount of profit for the wholesalers in specific because they're able to take advantage of their role in this process, in this system, to uh, maximize their revenue stream. This all was born from uh, the, the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition, uh, because many states wanted to get the mob out of the alcohol industry. They wanted to increase transparency. So they thought by having the distributors as part of the process, that would eliminate essentially what, what the role that was played by the mob. Of course, it made the wholesalers very, very powerful, and they've been able to use the, the revenues they've collected and their political influence to stay in business and do quite well for themselves. Of course, there's also a number of, of silly laws that are still in the books as a result of prohibition. Every once in a while, I think they pop up in the newspaper, but for the most part, people don't pay attention to the fact that you know there are still dry counties, there are still dry cities in the United States. Um, there are also some, some sillier laws, such as uh, until recently in Virginia, it was illegal to serve sangria because there was a law in the book saying you could not mix liquor with beer or wine. But they could bring you all the components of sangria. Yes, and that's how they got around it or tried to get around it. Many restaurants were, were fined quite a bit of money uh, as they tried to serve sangria. Spanish restaurants, which found it a, to be a necessity to serve sangria. Uh, in some states, in, in Alabama, for instance, it's illegal to sell beer with more than 6% alcohol by volume uh, or beer that comes in a container larger than 16 ounces. Which cuts out a lot of fine foreign beers. Absolutely. Uh, it, it certainly helps the domestic industry, but when you look at Belgian beers, German beers, other types of, of high-quality beverages, uh, they have higher alcohol contents frequently, and they, and they come in 750 milliliter bottles, illegal in Alabama, legal in most of the country, fortunately. There are still laws related to the three-tier distribution system, which stem from the 21st Amendment and the Prohibition era, uh, that are being litigated today. In fact, it was just 2005, just a few years ago, that the landmark case Granholm v. Heald was decided by 
the Supreme Court. Essentially, that was a challenge to uh, a ban in, in a number of states, Michigan and New York most notably, a ban on the direct shipment of wine. That is to say, if somebody from Michigan or, or New York happened to be in California or, or Washington or another state, found a bottle of wine, found a, a winery that they liked quite a bit, wanted to have a bottle of wine shipped to their house, it was illegal. Of course, they could have New York or Michigan wine, their, their home states, uh, that type of wine shipped to their house if they chose to. The Supreme Court decided that that was discriminatory law and ended up striking it down. But still, states have the ability, and about 14 states to this day, prohibit all forms of direct shipment of wine. And uh, the reason for it is is purportedly to protect the children and, and things along those lines. But but really, more than anything, is to protect the wholesaler's role in the distribution chain, direct shipments of wine. Though they don't account for a large percentage of overall wine sales, direct shipments do circumvent the three-tier system. And for that reason, in Maryland, for instance, it's a felony to have wine shipped directly to your house. Brandon Arnold is Director of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Cato will today mark the end of Prohibition with a policy forum, Free to Booze. Event registration is closed, but you will be able to watch live online at Cato.org.